Welcome to the Indianola First Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Our prayer is that this message will inspire you, encourage you, and launch you into life-changing action. Well, good morning. How's everybody doing today? Good, good. It is a privilege to be able to share with you this morning. Pastor Barry is always so gracious to allow uh, us as staff to be able to speak to you once in a while on Sunday mornings, and uh, this happens to be one of those opportunities. And so thank you, Pastor Barry, for that opportunity. I appreciate that so much. Um, it's, not, it's a big responsibility for a pastor to give up his pulpit on a Sunday morning, and uh, the fact that Pastor Barry trusts us as a staff to be able to do that uh, just speaks volumes to us. So thank you, Pastor Barry, for allowing us to, to do that. Well, we have been working through the book of Ephesians for a long time, right? For quite a while, Pastor Barry has been taking us through, sometimes line by line and verse by verse out of Ephesians. Uh, this is called expository preaching, for those of you that may not be familiar with what that is, um, and it's the most, uh, I don't know how you say it, it's hard, um, but it's probably the most biblically accurate preaching that you get because it's all right there within the scripture, and you dig really deep into it, and you mine it for all the truth that's in it, and uh, there's been some awesome, awesome gems, so to speak, mined out of that in the last uh, couple of months, so uh, as Pastor Barry's been taking us through chapter 1 and chapter 2, we've been hitting on some rich insights and some really good themes uh, as far as what Paul has been talking about. How many of you, maybe you don't know Paul, uh, I think we reference him quite a bit. Some of you probably know who he is, some of you don't. We're going to really be going into him and his story this morning, and uh, so we're going to do things maybe a little bit differently than we normally would do in a sermon like this or a series, because sometimes you start with talking about the person and who they're writing to, and Pastor Barry did some of that, but we're really going to go in depth with who Paul is, but in the first two chapters, he's really been hitting on these themes, right? There's some themes that he's been talking about, and we're going to talk about those in just a second, but the interesting thing is that I'm going to be starting chapter 3 today, and I'm going to be talking about about the first half from verse 1 to verse 13 of chapter 3, and uh, as we turn to chapter 3, the interesting thing is this, is that Paul, in chapter 3, starts reiterating things he already talked about in chapter 1 and chapter 2. So just to give you a few examples, in chapter 3, he emphasizes that Gentiles have been given grace by God. Okay, that's what he's been talking about in chapter 1 and chapter 2. He talks about the fact that they are a part of the family of God and are adopted children because they are in Christ. The exact things he was talking about in chapter 1 and chapter 2, the exact same thing. He talks about the fact that the Jews and Gentiles are both united under Christ with the same Blessings. And let me just pause here because I know that this is a little confusing for some people who may be new to the Bible and maybe you know, don't understand the history and the, the culture behind this. So let me just enlighten you a little bit because we're going to talk a little bit about, and we have been talking in this series a lot about Jews and Gentiles and what that means. The significance of that is uh, before Jesus came, the only people that could have relationship with God were the Jewish people. God made a covenant with them. He made promises to them. And um, he came to them over the years through their ancestors and gave them the Old Testament, the Word of God, and they had, a, you know, the Torah, and that's what they had. And they, they could have relationship with God through a sacrificial system to atone for their sins. And they, but, but the only way that you could have a relationship with God in the ancient world was to be a Jew. That's the only way you could do it. So Jesus comes along and absolutely changes everything, okay? Changes everything. Jesus opens up this entirely new world to people who weren't Jewish. And the people that are not Jewish, 
are Gentiles, okay? So probably the majority of us, probably 99% of us in this room are Gentiles, okay? We're not Jewish. So Jesus blows the door wide open and he opens up this whole new world to the Gentiles. And he tells them, basically, you have the same family, you have the same promises, you are now adopted as children, and God can be your father just like he was for the Jewish people. And so this is revolutionary stuff and revolutionary teaching. And that's, but, but Paul's been talking about these two groups of people and basically how the Gentiles have all the same rights as the Jews do. And he goes on to talk about the fact that he reassures them that they'll receive an inheritance from God. That's another one of those themes that in chapter 3, he's just reiterating from chapter 1 and chapter 2. So the question then is, why take another chapter and talk about the exact same things that you've already talked about in the previous chapters? Because remember, in these days, Paul wasn't jumping on a laptop and typing up an email to give to the Ephesian church. Now, the Ephesians, just another point of history, this was a church located in Ephesus. This is a fledgling young church, and Paul was the one who planted it. So as the father of this church, so to speak, he writes them a letter. You know, he's not typing an email. He's, you're handwriting a letter. And I don't know if you've read through Ephesians. I mean, it's a long. You know, two chapters, that's got to be pages and pages and pages of writing. So why take all of that time and write a whole nother chapter, a whole bunch of more pages on what you've already talked about? Well, let me ask you this question. When your parents, remember when you were younger, for some of you, and some of you, that applies today, did you listen to them the first time they asked you to do something? If you're under 19 years old and your last name is Thompson, I'm going to need you to cover your ears for this next part, okay? See that guy in the front row? I know where my other one is. Um, when my parents asked me to do something the first time, uh, generally I took that as my first call at a track meet. Have you ever been to a track meet before? And they'll be like, first call, boys, 800 meter relay, first call. And there's like eight first calls and there's like eight last calls, right? That's how I always took that. Like, hey, Jared, would you, uh, could you go take out the garbage, please? Yeah, sure, no problem, I'll get to it. You know, I took that as my first call, like that's whatever. Um, after 10 minutes of inactivity on my part, uh, and my parents would come back. This time, they're uh, a little angrier and uh, a little less, a little more serious and a little less patient. And that time when my parents said, you need to get up and get going and get the, get the uh, garbage out, I'm up and I'm out, right? I'm, I'm gone. Why? Why would I do that? What's the difference between the first request and the last request? It's tone, right? It's tone. Like if they were, if, if they were typing that to me, that would be in all, the first one would be normal case and the last one would be all caps, right? They're yelling at us, which reminds me, some of you older people, you type in all caps, okay? That means that you're talking to us like this all the time. Use lowercase. Chill your tone a little bit, okay? But when my parents came back that second time, that was like an exclamation point, right? Their tone was different. I knew that if I did not listen to them, serious consequences were coming shortly thereafter, so I better get up and get moving. The first time was very nice. The first time was pleasant. The first time used phrases like, please and thank you. The second time used phrases like, right now or else, you know? And so I listened the second time because of the tone, because of the exclamation point that they put on. And I think that's what Paul is doing here in chapter 3. He's telling them the same things again, but this time he's using all caps to talk about it. He was putting his huge exclamation point on what he already talked about, right? But... 
what was Paul's exclamation point? How can I know that? Because obviously you can't read tone into a letter, you know? Um, so how do I know that he was putting an exclamation point on or what was his exclamation point? Well, his exclamation point in this section is a bookend. He bookends his statements in chapter 3 reminding the Ephesian church of his present circumstances, okay? So let me, uh, let's run through that real quick. I'm going to give you the first verse and the last verse in that passage. Ephesians 3.1 says this. When I think of all this, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the benefit of, of you Gentiles. That's how he starts. So talking about being a prisoner. He's a, he's a literal prisoner. And then he ends chapter, uh, chapter or not ends chapter 3, but he bookends the first, the first half of chapter 3 by saying, so please don't lose heart because of my trials here. I'm suffering for you, so you should feel honored. So what's the background here, and what is the exclamation point that I'm talking about? Well, to give you a little bit of background, Paul was a Roman prisoner awaiting trial before Caesar. He had been placed into a Roman prison. Now, it's not probably, when we say that in the ancient world, you talk about prisons, you probably think of like a dungeon, you know, and the shackles with the guy's hands hanging up all day. It wasn't like that, necessarily. There were times when he was in a dungeon, and at the end of his life, under Nero, he probably was in a cell like that. Uh, but at this point, he was awaiting trial as a Roman citizen, and so he was afforded a little bit more luxury than that. So he was under house arrest, basically. Uh, there was a little house that he had rented with the help of some of the people in his ministry, and he was awaiting trial. Um, he was awaiting trial for a couple of years, and so he sat here. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that he was in luxury, right? He was, the fact that he was in prison meant that he couldn't go where he wanted to go and do what he wanted to do. He had no freedom. He was most likely chained to a Roman guard 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, and so because of that being chained to him, I mean, obviously there's no privacy when you're chained to another person. So, you know, imagine going to the bathroom or, or bathing or taking a shower. I mean, that person's right there with you. So he lost his privacy. He lost his freedom. He's sitting there in prison for a couple of years. And the question is, or what, you might ask yourself, well, why is he in prison? What did he do? What law did he break? Well, um, he was in prison because of the message that he was reiterating in the rest of chapter 3. You see, Paul took this message. Paul was actually Jewish, and he killed Christians because of what they were talking about or how they were trying to incorporate uh, Christianity into Judaism. He didn't like it. And so he killed Christians for a good part of his life. And then he had a radical encounter with Jesus. And Jesus told him that you are going to be my missionary, my ambassador to the Gentile nation, and you're going to tell them all about the salvation, which to a Jew was like blasphemy because only Jews were allowed to experience God. But Paul was given this opportunity. God called him as an ambassador to, to the, the Gentile nation. And because of this message, the things that he's talking about, the fact that Gentiles and Jews could be united as one under Christ and have in Christ and have the same benefits, that's exactly why he was in prison for that very reason. And so he uh, bookends his statements talking about the fact that he was suffering. And uh, I believe that he was using that suffering to emphasize his message to the Ephesian, Ephesian Christians so that they'd understand the weight of what he was saying. It's like he's saying, okay, these are the things, these are the things. Now in chapter 3, he's like, no, really, this is it. Like, I'm suffering for this message. I'm suffering right now for this very reason. And Paul, interestingly enough, whether it was his intention or not, Paul gives us a masterclass in these passages on Christian suffering. 
on Christian suffering. So let's hone in on that for a little bit this morning. See, suffering is a universal human experience, whether you're a Christian or whether you're not a Christian. There has been in certain church circles this idea that Christians should be able to avoid suffering because, after all, Jesus redeemed us from the curse of sin, and so we shouldn't suffer as children of God. But um, I want to tell you that that's not fully true today. And while there is truth in our redemption from the curse, the reality of that redemption is not going to be fully made known until the future. Like, we get glimpses of that redemption. Sometimes someone gets healed, maybe. Sometimes God answers a prayer supernaturally, and we get, we get you know, a little bit of that redemption from the curse that's promised us, but there's, that's not fully going to be known until Jesus comes back on this earth. So, in every generation, God's people have suffered in some form, and we will continue to suffer until Jesus returns on this earth and he makes all things new. On that day, the curse will be completely lifted. Death will be totally defeated. Sickness will be gone. Suffering will be gone. Pain will be gone in that day, but not until, not fully until that day. So the question is not whether we will encounter suffering, because we will, and trials, but the question then is, how will we suffer? And that's why I want to look at Paul today as our example to see how he walked through his suffering in these verses because I think he gives us insight for us into how to suffer well. And trust me, Paul had a lot of, uh, he had a lot of experience suffering. If you ever look at um, some of the books of the Bible when he talks about his suffering, I mean, he lists out the fact that he was beaten and left for dead and he was whipped and he was shipwrecked. And, you know, we read past those lists and sometimes we become numb to those things, but can you imagine being whipped for the gospel? You would write a book about that. That would be your life story. That happened to him multiple times. And that was just one thing on a list of several things. This guy went through suffering. He knew what it meant to suffer. But he also knew what it meant to suffer well. He had practice and he learned some lessons. And I think we can learn a little bit from him this morning. And I think it's important in these passages because that's what Paul uses as his exclamation point for everything we've been talking about for the last, what, month, two months has been summed up in this section, and Paul uses an exclamation point of suffering. So I think it's worth talking about this morning and learning some lessons on how we as Christians can suffer well, okay? And I understand this isn't a rah-rah, you know, amen type of a message when you talk about suffering, but there's some rich stuff in these verses, and I think we can mine it. So let's, uh, let's take a look this morning at what it is that Paul did to suffer well. I think number one, the way Paul suffered well is that he... His view of God shaped his circumstances. His circumstances didn't shape his view of God. It's very important. He put God first and looked at his circumstance instead of putting his circumstance first and looking at God. There's a big difference. Let's break it down and talk about it. A lot of times when we're trying to make sense out of our suffering, we start by looking at God through our suffering lens. You know, we look at God, we, we look at our circumstance, and then we look up at God through our lens of suffering and our circumstance, and we, ha- we come to certain uh, conclusions. For example, we, one of the conclusions that we come to a lot is we come to this conclusion that God must be angry with me. Like, I must have messed up. I must have done something wrong. I must have sinned. That's why I'm being judged right now. That's why I'm in this circumstance. That's why I'm suffering so much. That's why I'm in this trial is because I did something. We start racking our brain. Okay, where did I sin? When did I sin? I need to repent out of it because if I repent from it, then I'm going to be released from this and I won't be judged anymore. I'll learn my lesson. You know, or we go into that bargaining mode of, God, if I just, you know, 
I'm going to live a really, really good life. I'm not going to smoke anymore. And if I don't smoke anymore, then, you know, are you going to take this thing away from me? Or, you know, God, if, I, if we start bargaining with God, we have this idea that we're being judged for what, something we did. And I, let me tell you, that's not really true as Christians. And how do I know that? Well, a couple of reasons. Number one, there is a story in the Bible about a man who was born blind. And the disciples said to Jesus, they're like, hey, Jesus, did this man sin or his parents sin that he was born blind? And Jesus, which is kind of a dumb question, how would he sin before he was born so he could, you know, be born blind? But Jesus said nobody sinned. He said it's, it's to show God's glory that this man was born blind. And so it wasn't, had nothing to do with judgment. God's judgment for our sin was taken upon the cross. So if you think that God's punishing you by, allowing, by, 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 by making you go through suffering or causing pain to come into your life, you don't have a very good understanding of salvation. Because Jesus became the curse. He became God's object of wrath and judgment. It happened on the cross. When you took that upon yourself, we've talked about this for a couple of weeks, when you took that upon yourself, you became in Christ. God no longer sees you. God sees Jesus. Jesus took it. So when you're going through suffering, it's not God's judgment on your life. Okay. Now, I will say this that there are times when God does discipline his children. So there are some times when we walk through suffering when God is trying to correct us and teach us, teach us something through that. And usually, you know what that looks like, pretty much always, is that we're going down a path that God is telling us, stop, stop, don't do it, don't go there, you're going to hurt yourself, it's not good for you, and then we just keep going, and God decides to just take his hands off and let us do what we're going to do. And then the natural consequences of the path that we're going down get us to a place where we're so uncomfortable that finally we make our way back to him and that discipline and correction comes in. But we come to these crazy conclusions when we look at God through the lens of our circumstance. God must be judging. God must be judging. It must be something I did wrong. I must be paying for something. Or we come to this conclusion that, you know what? And I've heard this a million times. God must not be good because if God was good, you know, why did grandma have to die? Or if God was good, why did my cousin die in a car accident? You know, God must not be good because my circumstance isn't good. We're going to walk through, through good, we're going to walk through good and bad circumstances that in some ways have nothing to do with the Lord. But he's there with us through all of them. But those are the kind of messed up ideas we get when we look at, our, we look at God through our circumstance. Paul, however, teaches us a different perspective. He starts with God's purpose in God's lens, and then looks at his circumstances through the goodness of God. Uh, we read it already, but I want to read it again for you because this is where he talks about it. He said, when I think of all this, I, Paul, prisoner of Jesus Christ, for the benefit of you Gentiles. Do you notice that Paul doesn't call himself a prisoner of Rome? He calls himself a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Why is that significant? <laughs> because he realized a bigger picture. He realized a bigger purpose. He realized that it wasn't the Romans necessarily that put him in prison. He realized that it was God who allowed him to be put in prison so that he could reach a vast and broad audience. And there was things that God had him to do in Rome. In fact, when he was uh, writing Romans, he talked about wanting to go to Rome really, really bad to be able to talk to the Roman Christians. This provided a vehicle for him to sit in Rome for two years and be able to fellowship with the Christians and teach the Christians that were in Rome. Paul had a different perspective 
on his suffering and his situation. And where does that lens come from? How does Paul, how's Paul able to look at his look at his circumstances through his God glasses? Well, I think it's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17 through 18. It says this. Now remember, this was seven years prior to the writing of Ephesians that we're talking about today, before he was in jail. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So Paul, in these verses, like this is his perspective. Like how does he look at an instance where he's in jail and not get upset about it? How does he look at an instance where he's in jail and not say, oh, these cursed Romans put me in jail? But he says, no, I'm in, I'm in chains for Jesus, and I'm happy about it. It's because of this. It's because he looked at the eternal glory that far outweighed his present circumstances. He fixes his eyes not on what is seen, his circumstances, but what is unseen. Does that make sense? He looks at the unseen first, a.k.a. he looks through his God glasses first, then he looks at his temporary circumstances because when you look at the circumstances, when you, when you see the, the mile high, uh, when you take a chance to look at God's perspective, when you look at the mile high view of eternity, and then you look at your circumstances, those, those mountains become molehills, right? That's exactly what Paul was doing. He was looking at it through a different lens. So what am I asking you to do this morning? Well, this morning I'm asking you, not, when you're walking through suffering, don't give in to the temptation to look at God through the circumstance, but look at your circumstance through God. Look at him and his goodness first. Remember the things that he's done for you before you look at your circumstance and make, make your judgments. Look at the Lord first and his goodness and then look at your circumstance through that. It gives you a whole new perspective, I guarantee you. So Paul... That's the first thing that Paul did when he suffered well. Secondly, this is how Paul suffered well. He used his suffering as an opportunity to look outward, not as an excuse to turn inward. So again, we read it, but I want to read it again. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 13. So please don't lose heart because of my trials here. I'm suffering for you, so you should feel honored. What's he doing? He's encouraging the Ephesians, and he's the one in jail. They're perfectly free. They're going to do whatever they want. But he is encouraging them, even though he's in the worst circumstance. He wasn't looking inward, he's looking outward. Let me, um, I want to do something this morning. I want you, um, Tim, can you turn the full house lights on, please? I want you to take your phones out. If you have a flip phone, don't bother, because you probably don't have a flashlight on it. Maybe you do, maybe you have a flashlight up. Take your phones out, everybody got your phones? Some of you are just looking at me. Get your phones out. All right? Some of you already have your uh, your flashlight's on. That's exactly what I want you to do. Turn your flashlight on. Okay? Go ahead, everybody. Turn your flashlights on. Okay? I want you to raise it high above your head. I want you to go left and then right. No, I'm just kidding. This isn't a concert. <laughs> all right. Take your phones out. Pretty cool, right? Get all our phones out. Look around a little bit. That's sweet, huh? Okay. I want you to turn your flashlights off. Keep your phones out. Turn your flashlights off. Uh, Tim, I want you to kill everything. Lights. If you're on live stream, stay with us, even though you can't see anything. All right, turn your lights on. How incredible is that? You know why that's incredible? Because light shines best in dark places. Tim, go ahead and turn the lights on. 
And usually when we talk about shining in dark places, we're talking about going out into the world and shining as a beacon for Jesus, and that's perfectly true. But what I'm talking about this morning is that your light shines greatest in your darkest moments of your life. And not only for you, but for the people around you. They see you in those times. When we walk through suffering, we have a platform. People will listen to us when our light is shining. Let, let me put it this let me say it this way instead. When you're, when you're walking through suffering and you're doing it well, you have a platform. People want to listen to what you have to say. Um, because I'll tell you the other side of that. When you're walking through suffering and everything is internal and all you can talk about is how bad your life is and how horrible you have it and talk about, you, you ever hang out with people that just talk about their aches and pains and aches and pains and aches and pains? And you're like, ah, oh, your aches and pains. Like, nobody wants to hang around that person. The only people that like to hang around them are other people who have aches and pains, and they complain to each other, and then they talk about what kind of medications aren't working, right? <laughs> when you're suffering well, people notice. Why? Because it's odd to this world. How can you be walking through horrible circumstances and have joy? That is weird to this world. They don't understand it. You stick out like a sore thumb. And people want to listen to you. Even Christians want to listen. I want to listen to people that suffer well. Because they know something. There's a rich depth of maturity there that I want to glean from and I want to know from and I want to hear. We have a platform. So I want you to, this is interesting because Paul wrote a letter. About the same time he wrote the, book of the, the, the letter to the Ephesians, he wrote a letter to the Philippian church. He was still in jail, you know, under house arrest, and he wrote this church to a, or wrote another letter to another church in a place called Philippi. And this is what he wrote to the people in, Philippi, in, the, in the Philippi. He said this, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. He's talking about a circumstance. Same situation as he is in Ephesians, in the book of Philippians. He's talking about the same thing. But I don't know if you caught it. I want to, catch, I want to highlight a couple things in there. He says, I, I want you to know that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. So what's he talking about? What's happened to me? My imprisonment has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard. Because remember, he's under guard. The whole palace guard and everybody else that I'm in chains for Christ. So what's he saying? The entire palace guard knows about Jesus because they have to be chained to me 24-7. That's what he was saying. He's like, I've been able to preach the gospel to the entire palace guard because of my suffering. That's what he was telling the Philippians. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Why are the brothers and sisters who aren't in chains more confident? Because they see the hope and the courage and the way that Paul is suffering, and it, and it, it gives them strength to advance the gospel. So Paul, in his misery, not misery, in his suffering, was shining bright, so brightly that he got to preach to everybody who came in contact with him. And he wasn't looking inward saying, oh man, Philippians, you wouldn't believe how horrible it is in this prison. You want to know what they give me to eat? Do you know what I have to Do you know when I shower, that guy is right there every single time? You know, he doesn't talk about how bad life is for himself. He's talking about how great it is that he gets this opportunity to preach to everybody. And how awesome it is that the brothers and sisters are encouraged to go out and preach the gospel even more boldly because of what he has done and how he has suffered in this time so 
Please don't give in to the temptation when you're suffering to turn your suffering and retreat into yourself. And focus on how fair, unfair your life is and how bad you have it and complain about it. Don't give in to that. Instead, look for ways that God can use you to shine in the midst of your darkness. Because like I said, if you're suffering well, man, you are going to shine bright and people are going to listen to you and you'll have an opportunity to talk to people that you never would have had an opportunity to talk to before because they wouldn't have thought you had something to say. But because you are suffering and you're doing it well and you're doing it with joy and peace and the, and the fruit of the Holy Spirit, they want to listen to what you have to say. Right? So, how else did Paul suffer well? Well, the last, the last way he suffered well is that I believe he didn't be asked to be taken out of his hard circumstances. He embraced his hard circumstances. Paul didn't ask to be taken out of his hard circumstance. He embraced it. Usually people will do anything they can to avoid suffering, right? And rightfully so. In fact, if you were the person that ran towards pain and suffering, we would probably have you looked at because mentally there's probably something wrong with you, right? Anybody in their right mind doesn't want to go through pain, doesn't want to go through hurt, doesn't want to go through suffering, right? It would be weird if we did that. And if most of us woke up in Paul's position tomorrow, if we woke up in prison, what would be our number one prayer, do you think? It would be, God, get us out of this prison now, right? Get us out ASAP. God, deliver me from this prison. I shouldn't even be here. I was falsely in prison. That's probably what we would pray if we woke up in that uh, circumstance. Or let me throw another scenario at you just for a second. Imagine for a second that you walk up, uh, you're on a path, and you walk up to this fork in the road, and there's an individual there, and um, there's, there's road number one and road number two, and he says, as you, you say, hey, which road should I take? He says, well, this road, number one, if you take it, will allow you to just continue to live your life the way that you've been living it and pretty much basically what you're experiencing right now in life. You can go that way. Or road number two is filled with bondage and it's filled with a lack of freedom and it's filled with suffering and it's filled with pain. Which fork would we take? We would probably pick road one, right? Most... All of us would, and I would myself. But Paul was given that exact same choice. That exact same choice. Let me give you a little bit of history. Paul, as he is on his missionary journeys, is on his way back to Jerusalem, his home base, kind of where the Christianity started. And he's going back there, and he's warned not once prophetically, but twice prophetically by different prophets they said, you, if you go, Paul, when you go to Jerusalem, or if you go to Jerusalem, prison, imprisonment, pain, and torture await you. And you know what Paul said to that? I know. I'm going anyway. Paul made the conscious decision to go towards suffering instead of away from it. He had an opportunity to leave. I mean, the Holy Spirit is the one that told these people that. You know, and, and mistakenly, I think they saw that warning as a warning that Paul needed to not go, but... Paul already knew what his fate was going to be because he'd been talking to the Lord. The Lord had revealed it to him. And so he said, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to take the hard way. I'm going to take the way of suffering. <clears throat> so you might ask, why in the world would you, do, would you do that, right? Why would you take that way? Why would Paul have given an opportunity? Why would you take uh, the, the hard way out? Well, I, I think it started, again, years before. We're going to go back to 2 Corinthians. So about seven years previous, Paul's sharing a story about the way he views suffering, the way he, the way he views life. It's his perspective. We get like a little glimpse into his mind. So I want to take you there, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. 
And Paul says this. He says, even though I received such wonderful revelations from God, so to keep me from torment, I'm sorry, to keep me from being proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and to keep me from being proud. Three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I'm going to boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weakness and the insults, the hardships, the persecutions, and the troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. In these verses, Paul does the same thing anyone in this position was doing. He was given a messenger of Satan to torment him. What is that? We don't know. A lot of speculation on different ideas. I'm not going to speculate this morning because I have no idea. But he asked God, like most of us would when we're in hard situations and circumstances, he asked God, God, take this away from me. Three times he pleads with him in prayer. And what is God's response? No. My power is made perfect in your weakness. And so Paul, seven years down the road, has this opportunity through the Holy Spirit, being warned and knowing what's coming, to either take the easy path or take the hard road of suffering. And Paul takes a hard road. And now we get a little bit of an idea why. Why? Because Paul already learned a lesson from suffering that his power is made perfect. Jesus is, God's power is made perfect in our weaknesses. That's the lesson that he learned. Is it wrong to, to ask God to deliver you from suffering? No, not at all. I think you should. I think we should. But I'm asking you this morning to ask the first question, to let the first question not be, God, how can I get out of this circumstance? But instead, God, what do you want to teach me in this season that I'm walking through? Or rather even, God, do you want me to walk through this suffering? That's, that's a lot of maturity as a Christian. But sometimes I think God wants us to. James tells us to rejoice in our hardships. His power is made perfect in our weakness. James chapter 1 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so you may be mature and complete and lacking nothing. Why does he tell us to consider it pure joy when we face trials of many kinds? How does our faith become mature and complete? Through trials. Through trials are, are, are joy, or I'm sorry, we consider it joy because in our trials we can become mature and complete. We can consider it joy, and why is that? It's because when we get into those times, when we get into those places, those things that we stand on that aren't God, all of a sudden are knocked out from underneath of us. Last, like, last week we sang about the, the two builders, one that built their house on sand and the other one that built their house on the rock. And when the storm came, to the one who built their house on the sand, the sand was washed out and their house crumbled because the foundation wasn't on the rock. And that represents all those things we build our lives on. We build our lives on a lot of things that, that aren't God. And so sometimes when we go through those trials, James is telling us, consider it joy when those things get knocked out from underneath of you. Why would he say that? Well, let me throw a couple of scenarios at you. You know, most of us in this room are pretty able-bodied and we rely on our strength to live. We take it for granted that we can get up in the morning, we feel fine, you know, we go about our day, we walk to work, or we walk to the grocery store, we walk into the store, whatever it is, we rely on being strong in our body. Then, let's say we get hit with a sickness that incapacitates us, and all of a sudden our strength is gone. When we can't rely on our own body, who do we rely on? 
Or let's say, for example, for the majority of us, maybe we have a, you know, a lot of us in here, we have jobs that sustain us or some source of income that gives us the things that we need or allows us to get the things that we need. But what happens when that job gets lost and you become unemployed? When you can't rely on that job to provide, who do you rely on? Or let's say there's some of us in this room that are getting security through a close relationship. Whether it's love, whether it's acceptance, whatever it is you're getting from that relationship. You know, maybe it's a a spouse, maybe it's a a boyfriend, maybe it's a girlfriend, maybe it's a, a really close friendship. But you're getting security in that relationship. Then that relationship, for whatever reason, gets taken away. When you can't rely on a person for security, then who do you rely on? You go back to the Lord, right? That's why James tells us to consider it joy. When those things get knocked out from underneath of us and life becomes very uncomfortable, where do we go? We go to him who provides. His power is made perfect in our weakness. That's what Paul knew. That's why he didn't ask right away, God, deliver me from this suffering. He asked, he, in, fact, in fact, not only did he ask that, he, he showed it. He didn't just take the easy way out and bolt out of suffering. Like He went headlong into suffering. Jesus did the same thing. Jesus knew that his time was coming. Jesus had a, a temptation that most of us will never experience, and that is that he had legions of, of army angels at his disposal to use however he wanted to, so when he was on the cross, he could have called down legions of angels and ended it like that. But he chose the hard way because he knew that there was something bigger happening. And guys, let me tell you, I'm not God, neither are you. We can't see the beginning from the end, and we don't know God's purposes. We don't know his ways. We don't know his plans. And sometimes suffering sidetracks us. But let me tell you something. Sometimes God has opportunities for us when we walk through suffering. And so the question that I'm asking you to to ask this morning, maybe you're in that place today, I don't know, or maybe the next time you get in that place of hardship, trial, suffering, and pain, instead of saying, God, deliver me from this as your first prayer, ask God, hey, Lord, do you want me to walk through this? That's a radical prayer, isn't it? That's one we don't really pray that often, but that's something God has revealed to me, and I've started to, times when I have hardships and pain, God, do you want me to walk through this? God, what is your purpose in this? Do you want me to, do you want me to see this thing out? Because your, my, your power is made perfect in my weakness. In conclusion this morning, I know that there's those of you facing hard seasons in life right now, and, and I really, guys, honestly, I'm, I'm not saying take yourself through suffering for no reason or, you know, I don't want you to stay there any longer necessarily than you have to. I'm, I pray for relief. I pray for healing. I pray for all those things that take us out of hard circumstances, um, and I think we should. I know that walking through suffering is not enjoyable, but I also pray in this season, if you're in a season of suffering, pain, and hardship, I, I pray that you suffer well. Because there's a way to suffer well and then there, that brings glory to Jesus and brings people to him and then there's a way not to. Paul wrote four books of the Bible from prison. They're called the prison epistles. And I can stand up here with no exaggeration this morning and say that those books have literally touched billions, not millions, but billions of lives. Because of the truth that's taught in them as he sat in a cell and he, or as he sat in his jail and he wrote uh, to the different churches, those prison epistles. Billions of lives have been impacted by those prison epistles. God can use you in great ways in your suffering if you'll allow him and if you'll let him do what he wants you to do. Take these lessons from Paul this morning and let your suffering not be in vain, 
and let it not be uh, an inward focus, but let it be something that brings glory to God the way that you do it. And, and not only does it bring glory to God, it also helps you when you're in the midst of suffering to have these perspectives that he had because it makes it so much more bearable to walk through. Trust me. Thank God that Paul suffered well because in his suffering, he made a difference. And that's God's desire for you too. He doesn't want you to suffer. He's not happy when you do. Um, but he can do great things through you when you're walking through it. So again, I know this wasn't a rah-rah, you know, amen type of message today. Um, it wasn't meant to be. Uh, because suffering and hurt and pain are serious topics. And they're hard things. And they're things that a lot of people have left God because of. Because they didn't necessarily understand uh, the purpose of suffering and pain. And they didn't necessarily understand how to suffer through uh, those trials and those hardships. I hope that these Concepts that Paul taught us today help you to do that when you face those, or maybe you're in them today. Let me pray for you this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you for those that are in this room today. I thank you, God, for those, especially that are walking through hardships, trials, and pain. Lord, uh, we, we empathize with them, and we sympathize with them this morning. And uh, we say, Lord, if it be your will, take them out of it, please. And give them deliverance, Lord, whether that's healing or something financial or relational, God, whatever it is that they need. I pray, God, that, uh, Lord, if it's, if it's what you have for them, God, bring them to that point of deliverance, Lord. But God, for those, of you, for those that are in this place this morning and they're suffering, and you have something for them, you have something to mine out of this experience, God, I pray that they would embrace it. I pray that they would look at their suffering, not through the circumstance, or look at you rather through the lens of their circumstance and the suffering, but rather look at your, their circumstance through your lens today. God, help them to shine bright in their darkness so that other people would be attracted to you. Help them look a little weird to the world because of the way that your peace and your joy are flooding them in the midst of their uncertainty, in the midst of their pain, in the midst of their hardship. Father, I thank you for a great, awesome people, Lord, both here and online this morning that you have brought to, uh, to hear what you had to say. Father, I pray your Holy Spirit would work in hearts and lives this week. I pray, God, for all of us, God, whether we're going through trials or not, as we leave this place, God, that your Holy Spirit rests on us in such a way, Lord, that we'll look for opportunities to bring people to know the greatest kingdom that this world has ever known and the greatest king that this universe has ever known. Father, we love you and we give you thanks. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Everybody said, amen. amen. You're amazing. Thanks for being a part of the Indianola First podcast. Join us next week to stay updated on our latest messages.